Hi, welcome to season two of Open Out. We took a bit of a summer break, longer really than I'd planned. What was your summer like? Mine was kind of surreal. Part of me didn't want summer to end, since, except for the warm weather, it never really seemed to start, never seemed to happen. There were none of the festivals and none of the connections with distant family or old friends. Getting restarted on these podcasts meant admitting to myself that summer really was over. This is the first episode in our commencing series, designed for communities who are already at least somewhat diverse and are committed to becoming intentionally open, open to the great diversity of our land. My name is Bill Miller. And prior to doing this, I'd been pastor of Knox United in Winnipeg, a church that became one of the most culturally diverse faith communities in North America. Today, we'll take a peek into what's happened inside faith communities that have deeply opened themselves to welcome those who are somehow different. What's happened to their energy, to their personality, their identity? What did they lose in the process? What did they gain? And what is this thing called the edge effect? I went to Knox after 11 years working in congregational change and transformation. I'd been working for the region, what we then called the presbytery. After 11 years in the job, I was tired. And though I didn't like to admit it, I I knew I was just recycling old ideas. I felt empty inside. And that's a frightening feeling when others are depending on you. And so as I accepted a call to Knox, in in my first year I worked with a brilliant, quirky pastor named David Murata. I said little. I observed, learned. I didn't realize it at the time, but he was already beginning his own unique exit. Knox had been a very traditional cathedral-style church near downtown Winnipeg. It's in a high-density, low-income neighborhood called Central Park. The neighborhood had been changing, and by now it was mostly immigrant, still poor, but also somehow vibrant. There was abundance, just not any money. David was pretty well into his exit when, one Sunday evening in the early fall, we held our first intercultural service. The music was mostly West African, and the preacher that night was a robust young guy from Congo. And I can't recall now if he preached in English, or French, or Swahili, or all three, but I hated it. It was long And it was loud. There was so much yelling. It was almost angry in tone. Nearly made my head explode. I was so uncomfortable. The next morning when I arrived at the church, David was already there working on his computer. And he asked me how it went. I said, the music was great, but the preaching. And then I explained what happened. David looked at me and said, Ah, sometime we must have a long conversation about what could be the appropriate liturgical expression for male machismo 
from those who come from oppressed societies. We never did have that conversation. He left a few months later. As the months and, and then years unfolded, we as a community set out on what became an astonishing adventure, trying to see if we could indeed open ourselves, open the very heart of our faith community to welcome newcomer folk, immigrants and refugees. In the beginning, most were from West Africa, but soon from all over. It wasn't smooth. It wasn't particularly pretty. And we never did have a clue how to actually do it, what direction to follow. Plus, we had no money for programs, no money for extra staffing. Yet it was, without a doubt, the most fertile and creative time in my 30-plus years of ministry. Possibility always trumped probability. I've never flown in a glider, but in my imagination, at least, that's what being at Knox felt like. There were these times when we just soared. It was amazing. We were experiencing, though we did not know it, something called the edge effect. Suddenly, all the things that I had long dreamed of, a seamless integration between church and broader community, between worship and neighborhood engagement, social action, these became not only possible, they were happening, they were unfolding right in front of us. For most newcomers, I learned, there was no separation between sacred and secular, church and community, head and heart. It was all connected. Next thing you know, an African-style mixed market, women's resource center, sewing collective, community gardening, housing initiatives, all these began to emerge, and they were bubbling up from the folk themselves. I wasn't leading. I was surfing. All of this was part of the edge effect. I first learned about the edge effect this summer when I listened to a podcast. This is Hidden Brain. I'm Shankar Vedantam. It was an episode of NPR's Hidden Brain from July 2nd, 2018, called The Edge Effect. In that episode, the host, Shankar, explores human relationships in this creative thing called The Edge Effect. One of the people he interviewed for this was a woman named Christina Pato, a Galician musician, both a pianist and a bagpiper. Through a series of chance meetings when she was studying music in New York, she was invited to go up to a cottage to play her music with a bunch of strangers, one of whom was Yo-Yo Ma. Yeah, Yo-Yo Ma, the cellist. The people who were there in that cottage were musicians from all around the world, and they'd been brought together by Yo-Yo Ma to play together as the Silk Road Ensemble. I kind of was lucky that that night I didn't even know who I was playing for because if I did, probably would not have felt so free in the idea of what are these people, what am I doing in front of all of them. I began playing, they started asking questions, I got excited, then then I asked them to join and play and then we ended up that evening all dancing a Galician muñeira that I coached them how to dance. And that moment really changed my life in every possible direction. And in that moment, I didn't even realize how much that moment was going to mean for the rest of my life.
It was a turning point. Christina joined the Silk Road Ensemble. She embraced the vision for the collective, a vision that began with a simple question. What could happen when strangers meet? What can happen when strangers meet? This is also the essential question that motivates intercultural ministry. What could happen when strangers meet? This is the question Yo-Yo Ma had asked. What could musicians from many different cultures create when they come together? It turns out, something extraordinarily beautiful. What can happen when not only musicians, but everyday folk from many different cultures come together to worship, to live as a faith community together, to engage in social change together, to build something new in our social context together? Yo-Yo Ma describes the work of the collective as something he calls the edge effect. Christina says it's an idea that stuck with her. The edge effect is the point in which two ecosystems meet, like the forest and the savanna, and apparently in ecology, in this edge effect is where the most new life forms are created. And somehow Silk Road is some sort of his recreation of this edge effect. For Christina, working in that zone where new life forms emerge, that changed the way she saw music. And for me, and for many others, it also changes the way we see faith, see church, see worship. Christina says that what drew her was the possibility for connections and conversations between different musical forms. In Silk Road, you also have to keep going in meeting new strangers, meeting new communities, meeting communities of people that you have never imagined of working with, and maybe putting together instruments that you would never think they would work together, like a Galician bagpipe and a Japanese sakuhachi. Somehow to me, Silk Road is the metaphor of the 21st century society, or at least to the wish I have for the 21st century society. The Silk Road musicians have discovered in music the interesting stuff happens when people from different groups come together, work together, collide. Interesting word choice there, collide. Many of us in church leadership, perhaps feeling a bit worn down over the years, have become risk-averse, avoidant of risk. But ideas and passions from all over colliding is unavoidable. In itself, it's not destructive. It can be the opening to great creativity, to great beauty. With the idea of the edge effect in mind, I wanted to go out and check with some other folk in leadership about how they experience the creative collisions and connections of of living in a community that has intentionally opened itself to diversity. Communities exploring what happens when strangers meet. I thought it might be interesting for me to begin by checking with Leslie Harrison. Leslie is one of the ministry staff at Knox now. She has been there for almost two years and it was a 
almost three years ago that I left. So I thought it might be interesting to begin by checking with her to see if she's had something of the same kind of experience, this creative accelerant, this edge effect. Turns out she has. So I guess the uh, mo- most recent example is the um, Food for All program. When a couple of people come to me and they say, this is what we're going to do. I'd seen news reports about this COVID-related initiative. Basically, the Food for All program was the preparation of both breakfast and lunch every day of the week, Monday to Friday, and then to serve whoever came to the church and lined up. And that food was properly, according to health regulations, packaged and set outside, social distanced, and people were were able to come and pick that up both times of the day, breakfast and lunch. What set this initiative apart was A, how quickly it was up and running, and B, its genesis, where the initiative itself began. Uh, It was basically the observation by many of, from a couple of different cultural backgrounds here at the church, who have lived through times where they have not had adequate food or shelter or where there was a, a traumatic situation coming into their lives. And so they among us seem to recognize what this was within the first 24 to 48 hours. And so they also knew from the fabric, if I can say that, of that trauma, that there is only one response. And that response is to reach out and enter the collective in such a way that the whole has a chance of survival, not the individual. As we continued to chat, Leslie explained in a bit more detail about how all of this came about. The initiative began, she says. When a couple of people come to me and they say, this is what we're going to do, this is on a Friday, and we'll be starting on Monday. (laughs) And I laugh, just like you, right? Like, oh, of course you're making a joke, and you all know how the church works, and and this will take uh, at minimum four to six weeks, right, for us to go through all the steps and the process and the approvals and make sure the kitchen is permanent, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. So I simply say when I realize this is not a joke, okay, then uh, let me take it to the board. And they say, well, you better do it quick <laughs> because with or without that approval, we will go ahead. You know, I'm laughing here not because the idea is absurd, but because I experienced the same reality over and over. Community members would bring forward these astonishing ideas. And all it took from someone like me, or Leslie, is a willingness to try the seemingly impossible. To have faith when it might seem ludicrous to have such faith. Okay, like, what do you say to that as the pastor at the church? Like, what do you say to that? You know, away they go. And um, it limps and it drags and it has all kinds of potential for disaster. And yet it also has that huge element of grace that I believe that as people came to the door, that's what they absorb. And so they too move in those circles of the expectation of what is possible. 
Leslie commented that she'd experienced, she thinks, this edge effect in two places. The first was... In worship, because the permission to do a variety of different things is always present. And the second one is a paradox, perhaps. Because the regular administrative bureaucratic systems don't work in quite the same way, there is sort of a freedom for some very creative things to happen and visionary things to happen, while at the same time, huge potential for those to crash and burn. That familiar double-edged sword. When that North American organizational mindset, that pattern of uber-organization that so accompanies many of us in the dominant society, when that decision-making system is clunky at best, then the potential is high for disaster, but also for soaring, for grace to break into everyday experience, for the slimmest of possibilities to trump probability once again. Later in this series, we'll look at how our cultural background shapes what we see as either success or failure. But before we leave Leslie today, a bit more about her experience. I believe I mentioned before in these podcasts that Leslie had wanted my job for many years before I left. She kept asking me when I was going to retire because, she said, I want your job. She'd been working, you see, for for nearly 20 years, working in congregational renewal and development. She was highly respected. She likely could have found a ministry in any of a number of thriving churches across the country. But she wanted Knox. Knox. Anything but glamorous. And no one ever saw us as particularly successful. Why, I wondered, why did she want it? This seemed to be the place where there was both a younger demographic, the intercultural mix, as well as the potential for a new creation that was already planted and in the process of growing. Ah. A younger demographic, younger people. That's interesting. You know, that's one of the realities of newcomer church cultures. Generally, the average age is lower, and there are higher rates of participation by younger folk in church. Well, in all faith bodies, you know, not just church. It may be partly linked to stronger family ties that exist in many immigrant groups, that cohesion that is part of belonging to a more collectivist culture. I'm not sure what the reason is exactly, but I remember my experience when I was seeing all those young people coming to the church. My prayer was always, please God, don't let me screw this up. You know, following that same pattern of the edge effect, Cultural diversity not only seems to increase the different cultural makeup of the community, it increases all kinds of diversity, or at least that's what happened in our experience at Knox. Younger people, poorer people, diversity in education and literacy and sexual orientation. I learned that this is not limited to Knox. Nobuko Iwai is the minister of Grosvenor Park United in Saskatoon. We have a a LGBT community. I do very few funerals, maybe one a year. 
maybe, but over the last three years, I've gone through three um, uh, gender reassignment surgeries with mm. folks. You know, it's just a totally different kind yeah. of yeah. <laughs> More gender assignment surgeries than funerals in the United Church. That's not the case for every liberal Protestant congregation, I should think. And Knox, I remember, I didn't do that many funerals. In fact, we had far more baptisms than funerals. And in fact, we had more adult baptisms than funerals. Grosvenor Park was a church I was familiar with, but that was a long time ago, long before Nobuko became minister. So I asked her to update me a bit on, on their path. One of the things that happened, oh, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, we started uh, a class called the special class. We would never call it the special class now. <laughs> Our Sunday school class for those from a, a local group home with uh, intellectual disabilities largely. They are certainly part of our congregation. Without them, we're not us. And it was because of the special class, we became affirming. And because of the affirming, we have become more intercultural. That's kind of our journey. That's where we are now. I, I don't think we're particularly successful mm -hmm. in being intercultural. Almost a year ago, we sponsored a, um, a, a trans refugee. It's our second sponsorship of a refugee in the, in the last five years. It's interesting, eh, that opening outwards to create meaningful space for those with intellectual disabilities to belong and provide leadership, as Nobuko explained, that that act, that attitude also opened the community to more intentionally open themselves to LGBTQ2 folk. And this, in turn, led them to intentionally open themselves to people from a variety of cultural backgrounds. You know, at Knox, we saw the same pattern, but, but it kind of happened in reverse. By opening ourselves intentionally first to immigrants, refugees, newcomers, that led us also to a deeper opening to LGBTQ2 folk. And then, much to our own surprise, we found ourselves being a place where those who are labeled part of the mental health population also felt welcome and at home. It really does look like if we can move beyond our fears that desire to protect ourselves, to protect what we have, to protect what we know, and then to intentionally love those who are somehow strangers, it seems to create a host of new possibilities. So, what can happen when strangers meet? Apparently, almost anything. In earlier podcasts, we talked about liminality, that experience of being in the doorway, neither in nor out. That experience is key to some of the understandings growing out of South African intercultural churches. I have found Johann Sillier's writings on faith communities in the townships to be very helpful. One of the interesting things he notes is that this experience of diversity does not need to be initially voluntary to be beneficial. He talks about the townships as places of coerced in-betweenness and sees this as an expression and an experience of marginalization. Townships, he says, are places of displacement. And in that shared experience, a community can begin to meld together in different ways. This gives me at least great hope 
hope in the midst of all the confusion that's around us now. Sang Hyung Lee, at that time a professor at Princeton, wrote this about the experience of Koreans in the United States. Their experience of being liminal, of being in between. Released for a moment from social structure, persons in liminality can relate to each other simply and fully as human beings and experience an intense quality of human communion usually impossible in structured society. In such moments, persons can be free enough to reflect on their lives or society, envision new ideas and ways of doing things, and dream new dreams. The Edge Effect In a physical ecotone, the place where two or more ecosystems meet, the edge effect is not automatic. It's simply one of the possibilities. For the edge effect to happen, certain things need to be in place. There has to be the right amount of soil moisture, pH balance, and nutrients, and so forth. I don't really understand it all, but in our social world, our, our human world, our relationships, these places where strangers can meet and engage, these moments of deep intercultural relating to one another, these create the possibility of the edge effect of experiencing this great creative burst where people really can, quote, experience an intense quality of human communion, usually impossible. I've seen it. Leslie's seen it. Nobuko has seen it. I'm not a scientist, and I, and I really don't know very much about botany. But I imagine that on some level, at least, the plants have to be willing to change. Well, maybe not consciously, but physically, something in their cellular structure has to be open to changing. Human relationships, that involves vulnerability. You might remember from an earlier episode where Dan Berkodka spoke of vulnerability as essential for churches to become truly intercultural, intentionally open. In our next episode, we'll explore cultural humility and its role in nurturing relationships between folk with different cultural backgrounds. Vulnerability, that willingness to risk losing control, moving beyond our, our fear, that was essential for Yo-Yo Ma in allowing the creative energy of the Silk Road Ensemble to flourish. He says that this experience of interculturality, quote, took me way beyond what I knew, into places of which I was totally scared. But as I became less frightened, I welcomed new ways of thinking and approaching something. It made me an infinitely richer person and, I think, a better musician. As I became less frightened, I welcomed new ways of thinking. You know, the decision to become intercultural, to be intentionally open as a community, it's not a one-time decision. It's ongoing, continual. We need to keep on deciding to be intentionally open because when we stop deciding that, then we stop being that. That's how strong is the natural pull towards the, the ease of sameness, toward monoculturalism and rigid, predictable structure. Living creatively in the in-between is like riding a bicycle. You got to keep moving to keep your balance. The next few episodes in our series are about that. 
balancing, moving forward, staying agile and flexible, keeping the boundaries open, the edges porous somehow. This podcast included some audio snippets from NPR's podcast, The Hidden Brain. There's a link to that episode on the website. I did try to contact NPR and the podcast contacts to ask about permission for using this material, but I didn't hear back. So I'm trusting that using this falls into the fair usage category. But if you are Shankar's lawyer and you think otherwise, please let me know before you file suit. We can make changes. That episode, though, and in fact that series, The Hidden Brain, that's really worth listening to. Today's podcast also featured interviews with Leslie Harrison, one of the ministry staff at Knox United in Winnipeg, and also with the minister at Grosvenor Park United in Saskatoon, Nabucco EY. The theme music is by Bruce Harding. Research for this podcast was funded by the United Church Foundation through its McGeechee Scholarship, and I am grateful as well to the United Church's Publishing House and Intercultural Ministries for their support. Have you had experiences in community where you've seen this edge effect working? If so, let me know. I'd like to incorporate your stories into future episodes of Open Out. Our website can be found at openout.ca, and I can be reached by email at openout.ic at gmail.com. There's a Facebook page as well, and I can be contacted that way. We'll talk some more next week. pronunciation of it, it ain't Nobuko. The pronunciation that I've used for most of my life has been Nobuko. Oh, interesting. Okay. Because I think it flows nicer. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect.